you for this time of worship. We thank you for the great God that you are, that when your people praise, that when your people pray, you turn your ear to listen to us. God, we thank you that you delight in what we have to offer. You delight in the sounds of our voices. You delight in receiving offerings from your children. God, would you come today, open our hearts and our minds to hear from your word. God, would you speak to each person in this place in a unique way today with all the questions we come with, with all the things we have to bring to you, God. Would you speak to those things today in this place? We'll be careful to give you all the glory. Do your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm JR, one of the pastors here, and we're delighted to have all of you with us this morning. I want to invite you to grab your Bible. If you don't have one with you or you don't have your iPad or iPhone, there should be one provided for every one of you in the chair immediately in front of you. Grab those and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. That's Acts, chapter 4. And uh, welcome back to another part in our series where we're actually going through to study the book of Acts. And for me, this is one of those exciting books that gives us a snapshot into the lives of the early church. And I think it's really inspirational and inspiring to me. And uh, when you begin to read a book like this, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that when we read the story of the book of Acts, that the early church didn't have what we would consider to be advantages that a lot of our ministries have today, such as big budgets provided by wealthy donors to sustain the church for years to come. And we even see the credentials. When you look at the credentials of the early church, these guys didn't come from the right trained seminaries. They weren't highly educated men. They weren't formally trained. And as a result of that, they didn't carry the influence with a lot of the movers and the shakers and the powers that, that, that came to be in the areas of religion and politics in their day. But what we do see in the book of Acts is that even though they lacked those kind of connections, it never stopped them from doing ministry. And you and me, turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. We're living proof today of the effectiveness of the ministry that was launched through the church in the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. For the Bible says that the priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. See, they thought they'd gotten rid of this Jesus thing. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed so much so that the number of men grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest there, and so was Caiaphas and John and Alexander and others of the high priest family. There were about five immediate family members of the high priest during this council. This was nepotism at its finest. And they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And in verse 7, look at this question. It says, by what power or what name did you do this? Well, this is what had happened, and Pastor Kent preached on this last week if you weren't here. One day, Peter and John were walking up to the temple, and underneath a particular gate called Beautiful, there was a lame beggar. And the Bible says that he was 40-plus years old, which means he'd probably been there a lot. And Peter and John walked up to him, and moved by the Spirit of God, Peter looks at him, and he says, "'Man, silver and gold have I none.'" But such as I do have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the Bible said that God performed a miracle and the lame beggar was healed and he leaped to his feet rejoicing and praising God in the front of all of these people where he'd been a beggar, lame beggar, for some 40 plus years. 
It was disturbing to this group to to have a a group of Judeans, some simple fishermen, people who weren't trained at the right skills to be able to actually operate at this level of power and authority. And so they asked the question to the disciples, "By, by what name and what authority do you make this happen? And I thought about that a lot. I mean, what's it mean to use the power and the authority of someone else's name? When I hear the mention of a person's name, I I think a little bit about that person. I I think about their reputation. I think about the impressions that they've made on me. I I think about the positions that they may hold. I I think about the the levels of respect and honor that may may be due them just because of the positions that they may be in. Then it gets a little personal for me. I even begin to think about what would it mean if I was connected to that person and what does it mean if, if I'm not connected to that person? But despite that, in the midst of this, we find these two disciples being accused and being brought before the entire Sanhedrin, this religious council, to give an answer for why they're using the name of Jesus Christ to perform miracles. And when I read this this story in the book of Acts, I see a very different church and the early church than what I see in a lot of churches in my modern world today. These were men and women who were bold about their beliefs. They were bold about their connections to Jesus Christ. But I think it was a boldness even when they spoke up when it wasn't popular. They spoke up when it wasn't safe. I believe it was a holy boldness. Everybody say holy boldness. That was driven by the love of a father's heart for his lost children. Meaning that God saw the human race lost and he'd sent his son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he'd birthed that love inside the hearts of the disciples when they were filled with the Spirit of God on Pentecost and now filled with the Spirit to carry out the ministry of the church. You ever thought about what it feels like to lose a child? And Terry and I, we lost our first baby. And uh, I can tell you this, as big of a deal that that was, it wasn't as big of a deal as, as it's been down over the years. We raised four kids to, we actually went to a convenience store one time and we had this big custom van and four kids and all their friends. I think we had 12 or 13 kids. We pulled in to get some ices and I said, is everybody here? They said, yep. And off I took. We got all the way home. We no sooner got home, the telephone rang and it was a convenience store clerk who knew us. And she said, JR, did you guys forget somebody? <clears throat> And it was our youngest daughter. And she's the one that when she cries, she's got them big brown puppy dog eyes and her eyes just fill up with tears and you can just see them cascade over. It's a horrible feeling. Or to be in a store and for your child to run down an aisle when you're looking at something and you're not aware of it and you turn around. And how many of you have had that experience? And what did that feel like to you? Oh my goodness, it's horrible. Years ago when we only had one child... Um, my wife's here, so you keep an eye on her because she's going to be giving me a scornful look here in a minute. We lived in Kansas City, and we only had one child, and she's now 35 years old, and she was at Kmart with her mom, and I saw him, and I swung into the parking lot, and I thought I'd go in and say hi to him. And this is in the early 80s. This is like 1982, and this being, being aware of where your child is and, and the sensation that somebody could snatch them was really just kind of new and, and really coming on the scene then. And I remember walking down the aisle, and Terry had Alyssa sitting inside the basket all snuggled in nice and tight with blankets all packed around her. She actually had her hand on the basket. Lissa was probably literally eight inches from her hand. And she was looking at things around the shelf and her mom was right by her. And you know how ladies can be men, man. They were into it. 
they were talking and she was holding on to that and I just walked around and I grabbed Alyssa and picked her up and there were people there who saw me and I just snuck around the corner. Now, see, those are the scornful looks. Yeah, you, I'm just telling you, not a good thing to do, guys. Not a good thing to do. And I peeked around the corner just to see how they would re- react and I kid you not, when she turned around, her knees buckled. She was so weak. And I just share that because I think everything that drove the heart of the apostles, this desire to preach Jesus Christ, to make sure that people heard the saving message of Jesus, clearly had the opportunity to accept Him as their Savior and Lord, even in the midst of situations when it wasn't acceptable. They lived in intolerance. When you use the name of Jesus in their day, it could cost you your very life. And I think it's this understanding of engaging people where they are that gets Peter and John in this predicament. They were simply following the model and instructions of Jesus that day that they met the lame beggar at the gate called Beautiful. And I mean, let's face it, not just everybody goes around healing beggars who've been openly known to be lame to the community for some 40 plus years. And it created quite a dilemma. It happened right at the temple. And now the religious establishment has a real issue because this guy who was lame is now walking around giving glory to Jesus Christ. And this is the same council, everybody say same council, that just three months before that had tried and convicted and turned Jesus over to Pilate. They had made it their life's ambition to stamp out this Jesus mentality and anybody who followed him. Then the Bible tells us and. Verses 5 through 14, that Peter's filled with the Spirit, and he's inspired, and he begins to explain how the miracle of the blind beggar actually occurred. And it was no secret. They'd probably seen him at the gate a number of times. And in fact, I mean, just knowing human nature the way that I do, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the Pharisees and Sadducees actually stopped to lay their hands on this beggar and to pray for him. They probably probably reached in their pockets and, and gave him a few coins. But when they questioned the disciples in verse 7, asking, what power or what name did you do this? Peter answers in verse 8, and this is what he says. He says, rulers and elders of the people. He says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. Everybody say, know this. Man, this is an indictment. Peter's pointing his finger at them and saying, you and all the people of Israel, uh, you, you did this. And it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And just when the Sanhedrin thought that they'd put an end to this Jesus nonsense, another Jesus lover pops up, and not with just some crackpot religious response, but with an argument that is so sound to the Jewish understanding of Scripture that the Sanhedrin shocked. Now, Remember, this is the same court that had just tried Jesus. And in their mind, it was a question of of, of authority. Who granted you the right? Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Because Peter and John had acted in the name of who? You know, we live in, we live in the church where we, we say this about our kids and even adults. We ask questions at the church, and the go-to answer is who? Jesus. This is probably one of the times when answering with Jesus wasn't the coolest response to give. I mean, it actually gets these guys in trouble. 
But it was covenant talk, and they understood covenant, much unlike the church in the West does not understand it today. And here's what I mean by that. The concept of covenant is is foreign to many of us modern believers, especially in the West. And the reason is because we've been far removed from seeing covenants practiced in everyday life. But if you were in Africa and other parts of the Middle East, you, you you will still see these things today, even in India, and would really have seen them in Jesus' day. You know, we... What we have seen is the witness of contracts instead of covenants, and the word contract replacing the word covenant. Now, a covenant is kind of a contract, but it's ratified in blood, and it's inclusive. Everything that belongs to one party belongs to the other party as well. So there's no subdividing, there's no limit of exchange with a blood covenant. And a contract, any of you ever leased a car? purchased a car. If you lease a car, then you exchange a certain amount of money to the company, and in trade, they give you the use of the car. You don't own the company, and you don't own the car, and they don't own you. But in a covenant, everybody say covenant, you own everything the covenant partner owns and the covenant partner owns everything that you own. You take all their assets and you take all their liabilities. It's all inclusive on both sides and everything belongs to one another. Now, for those of us who believe in Jesus, that's good news. Because everything that we've owed, everything that we couldn't pay, he's paid for us in full. He's assumed all of our liabilities and given unto us the assets of the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross when he And and when he took bread and met with the disciples in the upper room and he took the bread and the wine and he lifted it up and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that is shed and my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And when he went to the cross, he he didn't sit down at a table and and sign it with ink and agreement like you do a car lease. He went to the cross of Calvary and it was there that he suffered and he bled and he died and he signed it in his own blood. And everything that is available to heaven, that's why we pray God's kingdom come now as it is in heaven. We're in covenant relationship with God. Peter and John understood that. And when they spoke to the lame beggar, they knew that they didn't have anything. In fact, they look at him. You remember what their words were? Pastor Kent shared those with us last week. They looked at the lame beggar and they said, silver and gold have we none. But such as we do have, we're going to share that with you, buddy. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he did. And I think this is what was happening at the gate of beautiful. It was the love of God for humanity being poured out in his children, through his children, the church. I think the actions of Peter and John really are fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17 where he prays these words. And I want to invite you to listen to these. Jesus said, Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Hint, the church. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me and that they may be one as we are one. In verse 11, Peter preaches from the 118th Psalm. He's actually referencing this. And he makes it clear that the members of the council are the builders that have rejected God's stone, Jesus the Messiah, and the promised coming of the Son of God. This is something that wasn't new to them. And now the council rules. Uh, Now, 
You know, Peter and John could have, they could have soft-pedaled it here. They, they really could have taken the easy way out, but having walked with Jesus, one of the things that I've, I've asked myself in, in this situation is they lived in a, in, a, in a land of great intolerance toward Christianity, and we seem to be living in a culture that's growing in its hostility towards people who hold to, a, to an orthodox view of Christianity. And one of the f- questions that I continue to ask myself is, when is it wise for me to speak up? When is it mandatory for me to speak up? And when is it best for me to be silent? But I think one of the things that fueled these disciples' need to tell people about Jesus was that, remember, they walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And it was them to whom Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. I think maybe, you think, just maybe, they understood what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The council rules and tells them not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And they were flabbergasted because these are just ordinary fishermen. They, they weren't professionals. They, they weren't scribes, but they weren't stupid either. And they looked at these, these just simple Galileans and they recognized that these were people who had spent time with Jesus and they thought they'd been done with this whole Jesus thing. And so with no clear way to win... And verse 18, they simply tell them that they, they don't want them to teach or preach anymore in Jesus' name. And really it's what they're wanting. They're just wanting this Jesus thing to go away, hoping that a warning would allow this Jesus of Nazareth movement finally to just die a natural death. You know, I've learned something over the years and in studying history and kind of looking at the movements of the church that one of Satan's goals has always been to silence the voice of the church and that of the Christian I just want to say this to you. Don't let that happen on your watch. Don't let anybody silence you in talking about Jesus Christ. Satan's method is deception and his motive is destruction. And if he can isolate you and cut you off from other believers and those who love you, you will become an island unto yourself, blown and tossed by the winds of this world. And they didn't want the message of Jesus to go anywhere. It started with 120 in the upper room and then the Spirit of God came and fell on people and there were 3,000 converts. And in this story, it grows to 5,000 people and now people are being added every day to the church. And in verses 19 through 22, Peter responds to the council's orders and he refuses to be intimidated by their threats. And I think it might do our world some good if we had a little more Peter in some of us today. But remember, I think, I think the motivating factor behind them the driving force behind this conviction, this resiliency inside the early church was the love of a father who had lost their children. It's a holy boldness that I believe is, is driven by love. You know, we live in a world today where it's popular to promote causes and challenge the status quo, and, and some of the people who do so defend their actions on the basis of, of conscience. And so we have phrases like a conscience clause. And as a believer, I like to think that I have a conscience clause too. And I like to think that mine's governed by an orthodox understanding of Scripture. And I think sometimes we need to stand where the Bible tells us to stand. And, and I think we need to believe truth as the Bible defines truth. And I'm just going to openly admit to you that I have a biased definition of truth. I believe in the Bible, and when I read the Bible, Jesus said this, my word is, say it, truth. And I understand that that's a biased approach for me, but 
I just wanted to get that under the table. But I think the Bible shares with us a whole list of what I would call conscientious objectors. Men and women who have these conscience clauses to which they subscribe, and, but they have one thing in common. Every one of them subscribed to this conscience clause in the midst of great adversity because they believe that they've heard God speak to their hearts. The first ones would be the midwives and Moses' mom who refused to have that baby killed. They believed that killing babies was wrong. There's a story of, of, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. These four Hebrew children who believed that it was wrong to eat meat that was sacrificed to other gods and idols. And they stood in the face of adversity against Nebuchadnezzar. And God's hand blessed them and protect them. And now we have Peter and John in the midst of the beginnings of the early church who are brought before the council. They've been told not to preach in Jesus' name. Jesus has been tried, convicted, and, and killed in their minds. They're wanting to do away with this Jesus thing. And they could have soft-pedaled it here. But they didn't. They, in verse 12, Peter looks right at him and says, you make the determination what's, what's right, whether you think it's right for us to, to teach in Jesus' name. But we're going to tell you that we're just going to continue to do it because there's no other name under heavens wherewith a man must be saved. They admonish him and they send him on their way. And Peter and John go and they go back to the church and they report to them everything that's happened. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, we see one of the most meaningful prayers I think that's ever been written in the Bible. It's a prayer that's a good example for us to follow. And it's a prayer that was born out of witness and service for the Lord, really right out of the trenches, so to speak. Peter and John come right out of the trenches, and it's a united prayer meeting. They all get together behind this closed door, and they lift up their hearts and their voices to God with one mind and one accord. And I want you to know that when you read this prayer, they didn't pray to have the circumstances changed or their enemies put out of office. Rather, they asked for God to empower them to make the best use of the circumstances to accomplish what he'd already determined would happen. And they waited to be filled with the Spirit of God so that they could engage ministry and not escape it. They didn't ask for protection. They asked for power. They didn't ask for heaven to destroy their enemies, but for the power from heaven to preach the word and to give them holy boldness to love people enough to engage them right where they were. kind of different than some of my prayers sometimes. Any of you ever been guilty of being one of the sons of thunder? Like, God, would you just rain down fire on them people? Just be done with this. They're a thorn in our side. They got in trouble for it then, and I, you see that they've changed, that something's changed in these people. They're not calling for the vindictive judgment of God. It's the love of God that drives them for the compassion of lost children who don't know God. If you were to ask me today what the secret of the early church was, I'd simply tell you that they spent time with Jesus. I think it's just that simple. By the way, that's my best definition of prayer. Prayer is more than just a conversation, though. It's a declaration, too. Prayer says what God's Word says to the spiritual forces that oppose us. It stands where God's Word encourages us to stand. And I know that sometimes this whole practice of prayer seems, it might seem sterile, it might seem stale to you. And, and I think a lot of that's because it seems to lack this immediate influence. I mean, we live in a, in a culture where we're used to pretty immediate gratification, man, right? 
I mean, when we're looking at quarterly responses and, and work evaluations, they're looking for things that they can measure and measure right away. And prayer just doesn't always work like that. I mean, when's the last time you ministered to a lame beggar and they got up and walked? See, that's what I mean about immediate results. But prayer, I think, serves as an incubator to the promises that the reign of God promises to bring to our lives and the world in which we live. It's to be shared. How many of you know what an incubator is? I looked it up, and this is, this is what I got from it. The purpose of an incubator is to keep a baby warm and to keep them oxygenated and to keep them nourished. It's, it's really man's best attempt to create an artificial womb because it's for ba- preemie babies and things of this nature. And they wrap them up tight and they snuggle them. They keep them warm and they keep them safe till, so they can grow and they can receive nourishment. There's one, but there's one thing that the incubator doesn't do. It's a sound design. It's mechanically driven, but it lacks the personal touch of a loving parent touching that baby and holding them close to the chest. Mamas, you can say amen to that. And I'd like to suggest to you that prayer is not just some sterile form that's to be observed in practice, but that it's living and alive and even though it's like an incubator, there's a personal touch to it where when you tarry and you wait and you stand on the promises of God, God breathes life into the circumstances that you face. I mean, as, as good as the design is, as good as the practices are that we follow, if God's not really alive, and Jesus really isn't who He says that He is, how effective is prayer? What makes it so effective, it's not just something to be observed, it's something to be experienced. Prayer is a force that is released. I think Acts is one of those books in the Bible where we see the commitment that Jesus modeled in prayer, a staple way to the way he lived a spirit-filled life, actually begin to take root and be lived out in the lives of the early church. You know, when you read the Bible, you discover that Jesus says that he did nothing without the Father speaking to him. He didn't do anything that he didn't see the Father doing, and he didn't say anything that he didn't hear the Father instruct him to say regarding ministry. And we began to see this modeled out in the lives of these disciples as they wait, as they pray for these infillings of the Spirit of God to empower them to go out and to do the ministry of Jesus. And I got to, this got me to think, and I, I wondered what would happen if we really became a church that was united in one heart and voice and together collectively began to pray for the Cedar Rapids area. I mean, when these guys got done praying, what's the Bible say happened? God shook the room. And that, we'd either get excited or think they were blasting in the quarry across the street on Sunday. I wonder what would happen, though, if, if we as a local church would lift up our hearts and voices before the Lord this morning and invite Him to birth inside each of us a new desire to pray. We'd ask Him to enlarge the capacity of our, of our hearts to love our neighbors enough to pray for them. In your bulletin, you have this handout, and we've been working with this little, this little grade. 
This is your home and the center and your neighbors that surround it. We're wanting you to get your neighbors, to get them to know them enough that you actually know their names, that you know something about what's going on in their lives. And with the nice weather on us, I, you know, I, I, when I drive and I'm out, I, I just I like to pray. And uh, I've had people walk up to me in the timber where I'm sitting there with my bow down, I'm making me a cup of coffee, my dog's running around, and I'm preaching my notes to just an open-wooded forest. But I'm, I'm praying. When I drive by some of your homes, I pray over you. When I know what's going on in some of your lives and your families, I, I drive by, I'm praying over you. And on the back, I put together a, a prayer walk. You can walk it, you can bike it, you can get in your car, and you can drive it. And it's a way just to encourage you to, to keep this with you. Clip it up on your, on your riser and put the names of your neighbors as you're driving or you're walking or you're running or you're riding your bike. I want to challenge you to love your neighbors enough to pray for them. Can we do that t- together this morning? Can we just close our eyes? and I want to invite you to just open your hands like this and let's invite God's Spirit to fill us. Let's invite him to birth inside of us a real desire, a genuine desire to pray for our neighbors. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Lord, I want to thank you for the men and women who are gathered here in this worship center. Lord, I thank you that you know absolutely everything that's going on inside of our lives. And Lord, we know and understand that it's your desire to use us with prayer to birth your kingdom into this world. And Lord, I confess that prayer is sometimes a struggle. It seems sterile and stale. God, would you breathe on us this morning? Would you birth inside of us a desire to pray, a desire to wait, a desire to tarry, to hear your voice? That the ministries and the love with which we share with people through Cedar Hills will be something that comes from your anointing and not just from our own ideas. And I ask it in Jesus' name. I want to invite you to maintain a posture of worship as we prepare our hearts to to give to the Lord this morning in our tithes and offerings. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of Cedar Hills, this isn't your home, we don't expect you to give. We want you to know we love you and, and God loves you. So this morning, let's, let's give to our Lord with cheerful hearts.